Welcome to Talk of the Town on 2SER, in which we bring you coverage of events around Sydney. I'm Ryan Stanton, and this week we're delving into another set of talks from the recent TEDx Macquarie University event. Over the next hour, and in the coming weeks, you're going to hear talks from some of the speakers at the recent event, discussing a variety of topics. From issues of inequality to the healing power of cake, each talk brings you a new idea that in the spirit of TED Talks, we think is worth sharing. This week, science. How may nanotechnology help with our current energy issues? Is our ability to invent outpacing our ability to solve problems? And could the solution to stopping heat waves really be as simple as planting more shade? All this and more, coming up later. But first, how can artificial intelligence help the field of medicine? Enrico Chiera has the answer. Trained in medicine and with a PhD in artificial intelligence, Enrico is at the forefront of these two disparate areas of research. In the following talk, he explains the possible connections between the two fields and asks the question, will AI mean we no longer need doctors? Oh, and before we dive into the talk itself, just a little disclaimer. As you may expect from a TED talk, Enrico, like other presenters you may hear today, uses slides in his presentation. It still makes sense without them, but you may miss a few of the nuances of his discussion. If you want the full experience, feel free to head to YouTube and search for TEDx Macquarie University. There's a playlist with all the talks for you to watch and catch up on any parts that you may have missed. Now, let's take a listen to Enrico. I think we should stop training doctors right now. That's an opinion that's probably drained the blood of the face of every dean of medicine across the country. Um, and it's an opinion that doesn't come from me. It comes from a funny place, really. It comes from a small group of computer scientists, experts in a field called artificial intelligence. And they're telling us that work is about to change, that the jobs we do today are not the jobs that will exist in 10 or 20 years' time. What's interesting is they think medicine are one of those jobs that might disappear. Uh, so, um, Jeffrey Hinton, who was uh, one of the founders of a field called Deep Learning, which is behind much of this AI boom, said just a couple of years ago, it's quite obvious we should stop training radiologists. So why the enthusiasm? Why this gung-ho belief? It's because AI is already part of your lives. You may not realise it. If you have a modern generation smartphone, it's already got neural chips inside it. The apps you use every day, um, Twitter, uh, Facebook, whatever, they all are optimised through AI to give you a personalised feed. Everyone's feed is different. And so, as you can imagine, um, there's a lot of money involved, billions of dollars. So all the big companies, the Apples, Googles, Amazons, are all investing heavily in the AI space. And it's not surprising they think healthcare is the next big place for AI. Um, what's interesting is that uh, there's so much money invested in this that the dialogue has gone from let's build tools to help doctors to we might replace doctors. And it's not just radiologists who are in the, in the line. It's um, ophthalmologists, dermatologists, pathologists, anybody who does imaging. So are there any medical students today in the audience? 
Um, probably, probably good if they're not here. Um, <laughs> Uh, this is uh, the cover of a book that um, summarises the first 10 years of research in this field of medical AI. It was actually it was the first book I ever bought when I started my research in the area. Um, it was published in 1984, uh, which says something both about the book and me, I guess. Um, and, and I can tell you, back in 1984, we were saying exactly the same thing. The doctors are going to be made redundant. Clearly, that hasn't happened just yet. So let's think about, I guess, um, where we are with medical AI. It's very clear uh, that um, big changes are occurring. Every week, dozens of papers are published, usually demonstrating that the technology is equal to or superior to humans. Um, so, for example, making diagnoses, um, being able to suggest personal treatments for you, or making predictions, predicting things like how long are you going to be in hospital, when are you going to go home? Or, or quite spookily, when will you die? We're very good at predicting death in hospital for some reason. So the biggest change, as I've sort of hinted at, has been in the area of imaging. So we know now that so-called deep learning or machine learning algorithms really are changing the way we interpret images. So whether it's MRIs, CTs, X-rays, ultrasounds, again, equal to or above radiology performance all the time. So that sounds like the death knell for, for radiology, doesn't it? But I want to suggest to you that these AIs are brilliant idiots. Let me suggest to you now that, um, well, let's go through actually four classic tasks um, that we test AIs on. Uh, and this is, these are tasks that would be requiring some kind of intelligence. The first one here is what I call the where's Wally task. Can you pick a named object in an image? And the red line is, um, human performance. And you can see that blue line is, over the years, the steady improvement of the best AIs. It's very clear AI is better than us at picking objects in images. So if you're worried about face recognition and software, you should be, because uh, there's a reason. Here's another task, which is speech recognition. This is not speech understanding. This is just dictation, the sort of technology behind Siri or Alexa. You can see that AI is sort of on par now with humans, but only for single speaker. Once you put two speakers in the room, AI gets discombobulated. So, so far, so good. I'm still scared as a doctor. Here comes the cavalry. <laughs> this task is question answering. So this is sometimes easy. You know, what's the capital of Argentina? You can probably just look that up, pattern detection. But some questions are hard, aren't they? Like, um, does the UK have a functioning parliament? <laughs> um, so, so that, to answer that would require you know, some intelligence and understanding of the world. And it gets even more complicated in a task we call visual question answering. So remember I said AIs are fantastic at detecting objects, so they can tell you in a picture that's a cow, that's a car. What they can't do very well at all is tell you why they're all assembled and what's going on in the picture. So brilliant idiots. So let me summarise the state of the art. Today's AI is fantastic at solving single, simple tasks. So imagine if it's a radiology AI, it might be brilliant at detecting TB in a lung. It's not a radiologist. It just does that one job very, very well. And so this idea of the artificial general intelligence or AI, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger come to save or, or harm us, <laughs> is a long way away. It's not state-of-the-art. It's beyond state-of-the-art. 
We don't know what it means to build something like that. That's far away. Okay, so let's think about this new world, this new world where we have AI, which is pretty good at lots of things, and we have humans who are good at different things. So it should be a marriage made in heaven, you'd think, um, each having weaknesses and strengths but complementing each other. But in that world, even without technology, there are other challenges that we need to face. Um, and the first one is, is one of ethics, the ethical use of artificial intelligence. Uh, some of you might read science fiction and remember this here. This is Asimov's first law of robotics. What does he say? He says a robot shouldn't harm a human being or through inaction lead to a human being harmed. Seems very reasonable, basic rule even for AI. The problem in healthcare is that we break that rule every day because we have to. So, for example, imagine um, that algorithm that predicts your risk of death in hospital. Imagine that it's now advising a doctor what to do. And the algorithm says that Mrs. Jones is 95. She's going to die in two days. She's at the end of life. What we need to do probably for her and her family is withdraw treatment and give her a dignified ending. That breaks that rule because we've allowed somebody to come to harm and die. Or what if that algorithm does the opposite and it says, look, I think you should keep on treating this person. We're going to be causing harm, unnecessary treatment, maybe pain. So you can start to see that what seems like an easy question of ethics becomes very tangled in healthcare because we make very difficult decisions. So this whole area of ethics and AI is not one just in healthcare. We struggle with it with the military, for example. What is the appropriate use of AI in the military? Another separate and very complicated question. Anyway, ethics is our first challenge. The next one is a very human challenge. Uh, and this is the challenge of trust and trust in technology. And the reality is that we're actually very trusting as humans, aren't we? We're very trusting of each other, usually. <laughs> and we're very trusting of the technology we have. So who hasn't used the GPS and taken a route that in your gut you know <laughs> is the wrong direction? Yeah. But, but you've listened to that smart technology. I mean, there are stories of people traveling hundreds of kilometers because the GPS said to. Um, what about now semi-autonomous vehicles? So these are cars who have AI on board that are pretty good at navigating the way. But if you've got a Tesla, the manual says, keep your hands on the wheel. This is a driver's assistant. There will, be, there will be circumstances in which you will need to intervene. You need to stay in the loop and stay active. And there are plenty of stories of people who have come to harm. So there's one story that comes to mind immediately of a gentleman who was busy watching Harry Potter on the DVD in the car. Um, instead of holding the wheel, not even paying attention, sadly, he had an accident, he died. So what is this? This is something that we as researchers have a name for. And we call it automation bias. And what it means is that we, when technology works pretty well, tend to be over-trusting. We over-trust and we step back and we're not as vigilant as we should be. 
And as you can imagine, that's not just a problem with driving cars or GPSs, it's a problem in healthcare. So what happens when doctors take advice from computers and fail to pay attention? And a classic example that we know about in our world is when the computer tells the doctor to, to um, prescribe a set of drugs which actually interact and would cause harm to this patient, but the doctor believes the computer. Plenty of examples in the courts of doctors who have done the wrong thing because the computer said to do something or didn't say to do something. Another thing, I think, is this whole issue of de-skilling. So um, I, I was born in an age when there were no smartphones. That was 1870 or something like that. <laughs> and um, we would remember telephone numbers of our friends. Do you remember that? Nobody remembers a telephone number because you have de-skilled. That is now something the phone does for you. So it's very clear that our skills in healthcare will change. The skills that it took to be a decent doctor 100 years ago are not the skills you use today. And with AI coming, the skills will be different again in 20, 50, 100 years' time. So this is just the natural order of events, but it does change what goes on. So let me sort of summarise where I think we are at. Um, I'm personally very excited. I think AI really is tremendously important. In partnership with humans, it's going to make a big difference. We're going to be better at diagnosis, at treatment. Uh, we're going to have a smarter, more agile, safer healthcare system. Absolutely, we will. But doctors are going to need to keep their hands on the wheel for an awful long time. Um, this idea of losing medical jobs, at least for the foreseeable future, isn't real. What will happen is that work will change. Absolutely, work will change. And that's going to happen for everybody. Doctor, accountant, lawyer, it's coming. I will just leave you with the thought that if you are a doctor today and you can be replaced by an AI, you probably should. <laughs> Thank you. Enrico Chiera there discussing the possibility of artificial intelligence replacing doctors. Now, from one frontier of science to the next, nanotechnology, like artificial intelligence, often seems to serve as fodder for science fiction and science fantasy stories designed to entertain us. But it isn't confined to the realm of fiction. Our next speaker, Dr. Nushin Nasseri, has a PhD in nanotechnology. In her talk, titled Nanotechnology is not simply about making things smaller. Nushin discusses the multitude of possible applications for the technology, including some lesser known ones. I grew up in a small city in the north of Iran, next to the Caspian Sea. My father is an agricultural engineer, a country boy who values academic achievements. He's my favorite person in the family, who is full of passion for life and always has a question to ask, always. No matter how old you are, how educated you are, how interested you are, he always has a question to challenge you. A question that is simple, but somehow difficult to answer. When I was eight, he asked me, why is there a time difference between countries? I answered very proudly, of course. Because the Earth is a spinning papa, it means that it takes seven hours for Canada to be in the same geographical location as we are right now. He said, true. 
Then why do people bother to buy a ticket and spend 18 hours to travel to Canada? <laughs> when the time difference is only seven hours, why not hire a helicopter, go up, stand still while the earth is spinning, <laughs> and get down to Canada only after seven hours? Yes, my father, <laughs> who planted the curiosity seeds in me, he taught me to not simply accept anything as a fact in this world, but look for a reason, a scientific reason behind every single fact. Why is the sky blue? Why does it turn red at sunset? Why are clouds white? Why are rain droplets spherical in shape, not cubic? So as I'm truly his daughter, I'm going to do the same today. I'm going to ask you a question. A very simple one, of course. What will happen if I drop this pen? Gravity, right? Simple. Now, what will happen if I drop a nanoparticle? Does gravity have the same effect? In order to answer this question, we need to know what a nanoparticle is. Nano means one billionth. A nanometer is one billionth of a meter. To help us imagine nano size, this is a baseball bat, which is about one meter long. Now, if you take its length and divide it by 100, you get to the size of my fingertip, which is about one centimeter. Take that and divide it by 10, and you get to the size of a needle eye, which is only one millimeter. Take that and divide it by 10 again. And you get to the diameter of a human hair, which is around 100 micrometer. This might be the smallest division you will be able to see by naked eye. Take that and divide it by 10 again. And you get to the size of a blood cell, which is about 10 micrometer. Take one blood cell and divide it by 10 again. You get to the diameter of a bacteria, which is only one micrometer. Take one bacteria and divide it by 10 again. You get to the size of a virus, which is around 100 nanometer. Now we are in the scale of nanometer, pretty close, huh? But not there yet. <laughs> All you have to do is to take one virus and this time, divided by 100. And you get to the size of half of a DNA, which is only one nanometer. One nanometer, it means only five atoms sitting end to end. One nanometer, one billionth of a meter. But what is it all about? Why if you are so obsessed about making things smaller and smaller in size? I understand smaller is lighter, is cheaper, is faster, and is smarter. This is what we consider to be the first computer made in 1940s. Big, complicated, and not very smart. Today, every one of you have your own smartphone. A smaller device, which is millions of times more powerful than the first computer. But nanotechnology is not simply about making things smaller for the sake of it. It's because 
science has different rules in the nanoscale. In fact, if you make materials, and you, if you take materials and start making them smaller and smaller in size, down to nanometers, the materials' physical and chemical properties change dramatically. The best example is the gold ring on your finger, which is golden, yellow in color. But a gold nanoparticle is not necessarily golden. It can be red, purple, blue, or even green. This is called quantum effect. Materials reduced to nano size can suddenly show very different properties than what they show on the microscale. Now let's get back to that pen and the nanoparticle. In our everyday world, gravity is the most important force we encounter. It dominates everything around us. Gravity is necessary for rain droplets to fall or for water to drain, even for our hair to hang down around our head. But on the nanoscale, gravity is nothing. It's negligible. It's much less important than other forces like electromagnetic forces between atoms and molecules, or the thermal vibration of atoms in a nanostructure. And if I drop this nanoparticle, the dynamics of such a small object would be much more sensitive to the factors like Brownian motion or turbulent diffusion than gravity. In short, the game of science has different rules when you play it in the nanoscale. But if we know these rules, if we learn how to play this game, we can design new materials, we can manipulate their properties, we can train them and make them behave the way we want them to do. In my laboratory, we are doing this by designing not only small, but intelligent nanosensors that can be trained to sniff out your breath. Yes, your breath. It might seem invisible, but your breath tells a story. And while that story can be used in RBT and get you in trouble, we can use it to save your life. You know, we smell different when we are sick, although our nose is not strong enough to detect it. But in the same, it, it, the body chemistry changes when we are sick. And as a result of that chemistry change, some ball markers are released into our breath and give us this unique opportunity of detecting disease just by sniffing out the breath. But there is one big challenge here. These biomarkers in human breath, they exist at a very low concentration, down to parts per billion. Here is an example, acetone. It's a well-known biomarker for diabetes. Now, if one in a million particle in your breath is acetone, you're healthy. If two, in a million particles of your breath are acetone, you have diabetes. So the biomarker's concentration difference between healthy people and patients is one part per million, one ppm. How small is that? Let me visualize it. <laughs> the entire Harry Potter series, 
seven books has 1,084,170 words, which makes the word Dumbledore on page 17 <laughs> of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone a little bit less than one ppm. So in order to detect disease using human breath rather than blood, we need to fabricate and design sensors super sensitive to detect PPM or even less PPB. Before nanotechnology was impossible to precisely detect such a tiny concentration. But today, we make sensors like this one which are hundreds of times more accurate than what we need. We can detect two parts in every billion particles in your breath. But how does nanotechnology help us to fabricate such a sensitive, sophisticated sensor? It's all related to the available surface area. Here, we have a cube with a length, width, and height of 20 centimeters. Now, what happens to the cube surface area if I divide it into eight cubes? You see, I'm not changing the material, neither its mass nor volume. I'm just creating more surfaces. So the available surface area is doubled. Now, imagine if I divide each of these cubes into smaller and smaller cubes until having cubes with 20 nanometer length. If I do that, we're going to have 10 million times larger surface area. Same material, same mass, same volume. But 10 million times larger surface area. In fact, by shrinking the structural elements of my sensor down to nanoscale, I can significantly increase the available surface area to capture that tiny concentration of biomarker in your breath. Nanoscience is not just one science. It's a platform that includes biology, chemistry, physics, electronics, medicine, material science, and engineering. It's shown its potential to positively impact our quality of life. And breath analysis as one of many research areas in this field can empower us with a better diagnostic technology and can help us to save many, many lives in the near future. Thank you. That was Nushin Nasseri explaining the possibilities that nanotechnology may unlock for us. This is Talk of the Town on 2SER, bringing you coverage of events around Sydney. This week, we're sharing all the talks from Macquarie University's TEDx event that focus on science. Our first two talks have been all about the potential good that scientific advancements may have in fields such as nanotechnology and artificial intelligence. But our next talk is a bit different. In his speech, Turning, Breaking or Vanishing Point, Jeffrey Braithwaite asks us, can we survive our own cleverness? Instead of focusing on the applications of our inventions, Jeffrey focuses on their effects. While many ask how science can shape the world, Jeffrey poses the question, could science eventually destroy it? Here's what he thinks. Let me start with a question. Let me preface what I'm going to say with a question and a statement. Who is young? 
Some of those people start to put your hands down, please. <laughs> Who is under 35? Great. Okay, so, you know, some people in my generation say you're the problem. <laughs> you're not the problem. You're the future. In fact, you're the solution. So, well, so it was an August summery day, and Sutomo Yamaguchi was walking to work to collect his travel documents, which he'd forgotten the day before. And he thought he would take a shortcut through a potato field to get to work. And as he did so, he looked up, and just way up there in the distance, he thought he could see an aeroplane. And when he sort of squinted to have a look a bit closer, he thought he saw a package or something falling from the aeroplane. And 44.4 seconds later, according to the laws of physics, there was a bright magnesium flash. And a few seconds later, he was blown off his feet into a ditch. It was August 6th, 1945, and he was a couple of miles away from the hypocenter in Hiroshima. In the hypocenter of an atomic blast, the heat rises to several million degrees, and he was just outside the blast area. When he came to, he was very disoriented, but realized that he couldn't even see his hands in front of him. He was burnt down his face and his torso. His hair was singed off. Both of his eardrums had ruptured. And he was, um, he was completely deaf in his left ear. It might seem strange to we modern people in the modern era, but during times of war, people kept on with their purpose. They kept on with their mission. So, amazingly, he decided to continue to go to work to collect his travel documents. He got to work at Mitsubishi Industries, outside of the blast zone, collected his travel documents, and there at work it was mayhem. No one knew what was going on. This was unprecedented. So he got his travel documents and decided to go across Hiroshima to try and get back to his hometown with his travel documents, um, by train. So he had to walk across Hiroshima and he saw some sights that no one should see. There were 75,000 people were vaporized instantly. A similar number were severely injured or radiation affected. And as he walked across Hiroshima to get out of town, he saw young kids with their skins hanging off. He was later to say in poetry, like giant gloves. He had to walk across a small river, and uh, the bridge had blown out, and he walked across what he was later to describe as a raft of corpses. He got to the railway station, which was operating outside of Hiroshima, and went back to his hometown. When he got there, he, um, he obviously needed medical attention, so he went to hospital. He was treated by a classmate from school who had become a doctor 
who didn't recognise him at first and bandaged him up. He then went home and his mother said famously, you look like the ghost of yourself. It might also seem strange to we moderns with our modern life and modern conveniences, but a couple of days later, he went back to work in his hometown. He was in his boss's office recounting this tale with a couple of uh, workmates, and no one believed this. They could see he was very badly burnt, but no one believed that there was anything like it couldn't be a bomb. No bomb was that powerful. Just then, they, something caught their attention, and they looked out of the window, and there was a bright magnesium flash in the sky. A few seconds later, the windows in the boss's office were blown out, and they were all thrown to the ground. His hometown was Nagasaki, Japan. He's the only person in history to be twice A-bombed. I'm never sure whether Mr. Gamaguchi was the luckiest or the unluckiest person ever to have lived. He married someone who was only once radiation affected, someone who was just outside the hypo center in Nagasaki, and they had a couple of kids. But I don't want to tell Mr. Yamaguchi's story just to capture um, the interest of you who might have a yearning to understand people in history or interesting stories. I want to use this to tell a story of our current world, our current environment. So my question to you is, in the current era, 2019, have we reached a turning point where we recognize what science and technology has delivered to us, uh, but we're turning away from all the bad things that that creates, such as nuclear proliferation and climate change? Or are we reaching a breaking point where we break our connection with the Earth and its, and its benefits? Or are we reaching the beginning of a vanishing point where there will be no Earth and there will be no Homo sapiens, there will be no species, there will be no us? So that's my question. So this is Hiroshima after um, the devastating bomb. And it was literally flattened with one bomb. Interestingly, the bomb itself, only 1.7% only of its nuclear materials fissioned. Today, we have bombs that are far more powerful and would do far more if they were ever released than Hiroshima and Nagasaki sustained. President Truman, who was the US president at the time, said some interesting things. He said, if Japan does not surrender after Nagasaki, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there will be a reign of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. Japan surrendered six days later. It was going to grind it out across months or years, but it surrendered after this. President Truman also said, this is the greatest achievement of organized science in history. And that's true. The Manhattan Project, which produced the bomb, was amazing science. But the problem we would ask is, what about the consequences of that science? It cost US $2 billion in 1945. That's $29 billion in 2019. So this is serious scientific advancement, if you want to use that word. And this is what it's produced. Nuclear warheads now that are so uh, powerful, we could kill many, many, all the people in the Earth many, many times. So George A. Cowan, who was a physical chemist who worked on the Manhattan Project, said, I have had second thoughts all my life about this. 
But he also said without nuclear weapons, we might have been on a more ruinous road to destruction. There's two schools of thought. There's a school of thought that said without Nagasaki and Hiroshima, we would have had more casualties, more lives, more destruction. The other school of thought is we should never release bombs on people. I've been to the Peace Park in Hiroshima. It should be on your bucket list if you have not been there. It shows how many people were killed in Hiroshima and also Nagasaki, 75,000 instantly in Hiroshima, 40,000 in Nagasaki, and many, many, many more injured and maimed and uh, radiation affected. Mostly kids, mostly civilians. Hiroshima and Nagasaki weren't theatres of war. They were cities with people living in them. The troops weren't there. They were other places. The most evocative thing in the Peace Park is the banks, uh, is the steps of a bank. And this is a person, with, this is what's left of a person, who was waiting on that fine August day in Hiroshima to go into the bank. They were standing on the steps of the bank. And they were vaporised. And that stain there is what's left of them etched into the steps of the bank. I'm not prone to emotion. I get a few highs now and again. I'm not prone to emotion, but I cried for a long time at this site. This person's organic atoms mingled with inorganic stone. This is my hero. This is Sutomo Yamaguchi. Mr. Yamaguchi, you might be surprised, I'm certainly surprised, lived until he was 93 years old and died of stomach cancer. He had a family, and after the war, he was so generous-spirited, he acted as an interpreter for the uh, occupying American forces during the post-war years, and later he became a peace activist and wrote poetry. But the story doesn't end with Mr. Yamaguchi and his life. In the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, humans tested, the nuclear, uh, nuclear countries tested many, many bombs much more powerful than Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And when they did so, they released plutonium-239 around the world. So etched in the rocks and in the soil and under the, uh, at the bottom of the oceans are plutonium-239. That's an element, an isotope of an element. And it has a half-life of 24,000 years. So it will be there for a long time as a marker of nuclear proliferation, the nuclear age. And geologists are very interested when markers go down etched on rocks because that signifies the changing of an era from one time to another. So geologists are the people who name eras. You know, there's the Jurassic, Jurassic Park, and the Devonian and the Cambrian. And the current era is called the Holocene. The current era is called the Holocene. And the geologists have decided to rename the current era. Do you know the name that they're renaming the Holocene, the current era, the name for the current era, to? Do you know what the new name is? I'll come back to you. So... So are we at a turning point in the Earth's history? 
Will we change this? Will we fix this? Are we at a breaking point? Or are we at a vanishing point? So geologists have decided that we, well, the data shows us that we are in a great acceleration since Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the science that was produced there. A great acceleration. And the geologists have decided that we're not in the Holocene, but the Anthropocene, the age of humans, the age of man. And one species, us, is changing the whole character of the world. And that's never happened before, that one species has so dominated the world. So they've decided this is to be renamed from the Holocene, the last 10,000 years, to the Anthropocene. But it's the only time a creature has renamed the current era that they live in, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. That's kind of cool if you're a scientist. So these are some data. It doesn't matter if you can't see the detail. These are data about world population and GDP and fertilizer consumption and energy use and water use and paper production and transportation and international tourism, etc. What do you notice about the data? The technical term is it's a hockey stick. That is to say, it goes like that. And the question about hockey stick data is, where does it end? Where does it go to when you extrapolate it? And where does it end? So if we all consume at the current rates of the average Australian or American, we'll need what, not one Earth, but two Earths. Not two Earths, not three Earths, but three and a half Earths. And hey, we only have one Earth. So that's a problem. So my question is this, or my, one of my questions is this. Are we smart enough to create technological advances since the Manhattan Project? and to purpose design the world in which we live and enjoy the benefits, which we do, but not smart enough to solve the problems that have been created as a result of that ingenuity. And just to choose the two I'm talking about, nuclear proliferation and climate change. Let me put this another way to you. Can we survive our own cleverness? Are we, in fact, going to create a world where the technological is married to the, uh, to the biological features of the planet and live in harmony? Or are we going to have a breaking point and then a vanishing point? Each of us has a role to play, and I think the next decade, the decade of the 2020s, is the most pivotal decade in human history. What are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? What are the under 35s in the audience going to do about it? Because we're relying on you. Thank you very much. Jeffrey Braithwaite ending his talk by asking us to consider the impact of science on society. And if that talk left you worried about the future, don't worry. I talked with Jeffrey about how bad the situation really is and what we can do about it. So the first question I want to ask is, how did you get involved in the TEDx conference? 
So several of my um, PhD students uh, decided to take this on in a brilliantly heroic effort whilst they were also doing their PhD. So Hossai Gul, Kiara Pomare, and Zayad Mahmood are three uh, people doing a PhD with me. And they decided to do a TEDx for centered on Macquarie University. And so they asked you to be involved? Yeah. So they asked me and a number of people within the university and outside of the university, you know, going through their own networks to get a whole lot of people who they thought would be interesting. Well, I think they certainly accomplished that task in terms of interesting, and your talk was particularly interesting. I want to ask you, how did you choose what you were going to talk about when you knew that you were going to talk? So I'm in the middle of writing several books, and although I write a lot of academic books, I edit quite a lot of academic books on health reform across the world, health systems improvement. I'm also in the process of writing a couple of popular science books to try and bring to the lay leadership, people who aren't in universities, stuff about what's happening in the world and interesting information, we hope interesting, for the benefit of people who um, maybe have or may not have a university education who might be interested in what's happening now and in the future. So... You you explain a lot about what's happening now and in the future in your talk, and you mentioned this idea of the we're at this point, which might be a turning, a breaking, or a vanishing point. Yeah. Which do you think we're heading towards? You you ask the audience to consider it. What do you consider us to be heading towards at the moment? That's a brilliant question. So the, this is the decade, I think, where things are going to matter. And I think this is the decade where we are going to have to make some key decisions as, as a, a world community. You know, the recent bushfires in, in Australia, in the eastern states of Australia, and also across in WA as well, and, and, and South Australia, are really underscoring the point. We have a decision now to make, whether we're going to seriously address some of the world's problems. I see two or three really big problems. So my view is this is the pivotal decade now. We've now entered the pivotal decade where we have to make decisions. And I think there's three major things that are troublesome and concerning. The three things are, I don't think we can any longer have so many nuclear weapons um, present in the world when we've seen a turn in politics which hasn't been very attractive across the world to less democracy and more, shall we say, risky governance models. The second one is climate change. Um, and, you know, that's obvious. You just have to go on the TED website and see the different people who are s sort of saying this, and I'm lending my voice to that, but with a slightly different twist. The third thing's a bit of a sleeper, and it's not so well known amongst the community, and that is artificial intelligence, or should I say technology advancement. I don't want to be I don't want to be alarmist like the um, the Terminator movies to say you know we'll see the rise of the machines and they will fight humanity and there'll be a war between machines and humanity but I do think that technology could get out of control I do think artificial intelligence we don't really understand what rules we should set up for the governance of artificial intelligence 
And therefore, I don't think we should let that one get away from us either. I think there's three things there that really could be quite cataclysmic for humanity that we've got to start making decisions on now. One of the commonalities I noticed in those three things is they are all sort of brought about to a certain extent by science and technological advancements that yep. we've had. Do you think there needs to be a, a refocusing or a rethinking to the way we do science? Yeah. Look, scientists would say that what they do is neutral. They just invent, discover, you know, a study, uh, and out of that comes new things. The iPhone, technology in my own field, which diagnoses you or tests you. Science itself says, look, it's neutral. It, it goes where new knowledge goes and invents new things or discovers new things. But I think there's a governance model that's missing there. Have we got the right decision-making processes where science meets humanity, meets politics, meets economics, meets human interests? Um, have we got the right governance models to say what should happen to technology? Where's the bit sitting in the middle where we say, well, should we do these things? Why should we do these things? What's the cost-benefit or the reward-penalty um, kind of equation? Where do we sit there? Right. So to maybe oversimplify what you're saying about our approach to science, it, it reminds me of that, that quote from Jurassic Park, the whole, they spent so much time thinking of whether they could that they never stopped to ask whether they should. Is that yeah. accurate? That, <laughs> it's a good quote and a great movie. The other thing I keep saying is, you know, I keep thinking about humanity. We're really a smart species. But the question is, are we smart enough to have designed the world that we've designed, but not smart enough to solve some of the problems that that design of the world has now created? And that's my equivalent to your Jurassic Park statement. And that's a grave worry. The final question I have is, all these issues seem very real, very prescient, as we've discussed. What can we do to help or change this? To If we're so concerned about this, how can we prevent it? So, you know, they say that you get the politics, the, 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 the population gets the politics it deserves. I don't think we've got the politics we deserve. But people are spending their time, um, you know, on things like Brexit or creating um, a, a better economy without thinking about the consequences or, or uh, spending their time, in some cases, denying or not doing enough about climate change, um, worrying about other things that are really third-order issues. These three things are first-order issues. Any government should have these on its agenda right now and top of the list when they go to cabinet discussions. Nuclear proliferation, climate change, artificial intelligence, the, the consequences of technology. These should be things that governments are looking at now. We have to think smarter about these things as a collective, and they have to be the, on, on the agenda of governments. In democracies, the only way we're going to do that, it seems to me, because governments will don't seem inclined to do this of their own volition, we'll have to change that at the ballot box or have citizen action. I think the people are going to have to make their voices heard here. 
you've been you've been wonderful. You've been insightful. Before you go, I just want to ask you: Is there anything else you want to say to the listeners, or you want to ask me? Maybe. Well, you know, your listeners um, are very important. They're they they're a smart group of people. So I'm counting on people like your listeners to help in this quest to try and create a better world, really. And I know that sounds naive, but it's really what we need. That was Jeffrey Braithwaite expanding on his talk about the effects science can have on our planet. It's potentially sobering stuff. So for our final talk, we're going to shift to something maybe a little bit more hopeful. Looking at the positive effects of science is Lee Stas. In her talk, How Much Would You Pay for Shade? She presents a possible solution to one of the problems that Geoffrey mentions, the rising temperatures in countries like Australia. So how much would you be willing to pay for shade? It seems like a crazy question. Why would anyone pay for shade? It's like asking, how much would you be willing to pay for the air that you breathe? By the end of this talk, you're not only going to want shade, you're going to be willing to pay for it, and I'm going to show you the cheapest way to get it. Who here has experienced an Australian heat wave? You know, the 40-degree heat that goes for days and days? You can't sleep at night because the air is so heavy and stifling, and then you wake up exhausted and you have to get yourself together to work. The trains are delayed or shut down, and the roads are chaos. And then when you finally get to work, you have to deal with everyone else who's struggling. Productivity and performance is low. There is just no relief. Maybe you're one of the people that work outside for a living and can't escape the heat. You have to change your work hours to five o'clock in the morning, and then um, there's days when it's just too hot and you don't go to work and you miss out on that paycheck. Maybe you have children that goes to school with no air conditioning, or worse, demountables with no air conditioning. We expect them to sit there all day and concentrate and learn new information Maybe you're that person that can't turn on the air conditioner because you simply can't afford the bill. Or maybe you're like me. I have an underlying health condition which is not conducive to heat. I have lupus and bad kidneys and heat and I don't mix. You might be lucky. You might, be, uh, you might work and live in a place that has good quality shade that is protected from the heat, you have air conditioning in your home, your car, and in your workplace. But everyone in this room has experienced the extreme discomfort of a heat wave. Heat comes at the ultimate cost. It's, we need to keep our core temperature at around 37 degrees. When it rises above this, we become compromised and stressed. If our body core temperature raises two degrees, we become really sick. If it rises four degrees, we actually die. Research from around the world has shown that heat-related stress, that heat, extreme heat waves has killed more people than any other natural disaster put together. 
That includes floods, cyclones, severe storms and bushfires. In 2003, it is estimated that 70,000 people died from the European heat wave. In Adelaide and Melbourne, during the 2009 heat wave, it's estimated around 500 people died. And in 2010, the Russian Federation underwent a 44-day heat wave, killing an estimated 56,000 people. But the cost of heat extends far beyond just our health and well-being. Extreme temperatures have an, an enormous impact on our critical infrastructure. It can melt roads, it can buckle rail lines, and it can even ground planes. But it is our energy sector that is the most vulnerable to heat, the very thing we require to keep us cool. In extreme temperatures, there are outages and there is pressure on, on the electricity system and then the added pressure of air conditioning and energy security becomes a major problem. So to explain what the cost is to Australia, I want to take you to a point in time. The 2009 Melbourne and Adelaide heatwave. It was the last days of the last five days of January 2009. The temperatures were above 14 degrees, 14 degrees average temperature, but there were three days that were above 43 degrees. This had an enormous domino effect across the southeast of Australia. There were 3,000 people admitted into hospital. Now, each hospital admission cost around $5,000 to that system. So 3,000 people in a five-day event cost our Australian healthcare system $15.5 million. On top of that, on the fourth day of the heat wave, half a million households went without power, some for up to two days. This was created by outages within the system, but also the energy providers had to do rotating blockages to make sure that the whole system didn't collapse. It is estimated that the disruptions to services, including emergency, transport and electricity, cost Australia over $800 million. This does not include losses to small business, to big industry and to agriculture. So this five-day event cost Australia over $800 million. Australia is not, un it is not unique in this space. What we are seeing is temperatures rising all around the world. We are heading to a place where the cool change will never come. Are we prepared for this? As our cities are transforming before our eyes, ever-increasing population is putting pressure on demand for housing, infrastructure and jobs. But there is a fundamental flaw in how we are designing our cities. This is becoming the new norm. So what's wrong with this space? It's highly engineered. It's full of dark, hard and impervious services. It traps heat. This is what causes the urban heat island effect, which raises the temperature of our cities around 10 degrees up to 10 degrees higher than our rural surrounding areas. This type of design will not protect us against the future. Does it have to be like this? 
I'm going to show you that there is a cheap and effective way that we can shade and cool our cities to protect us from things like this. The answer is shade. And I'm not talking about the built environment shade that we can build with different materials. What I'm talking to you about is the highest quality shade, the shade that's given to us by trees. Trees are natural air conditioners. They act through a process called evapotranspiration. In short, what they can do is they act like an air conditioning unit that runs for 20 hours a day and can reduce the temperature by eight degrees. The more mature trees, the bigger the benefit, and the more trees that we have, the bigger the impact and the greater the cooling effect. Trees are our cheapest and most effective climate change mitigation strategy that we have. They can improve the air quality, they can improve microclimates, they store carbon, they can improve our health and well-being and our social cohesion. They can actually increase the value of your home by up to $150,000 and they provide habitat for the biodiversity in our cities. So, knowing all this, we know that we can use shade to protect our cities. So here's my call to action. We need to protect the trees that we have, knowing that mature trees are the most effective in their cooling and they take 10, 20 years, up to 20 years to grow. We need to conserve the space that we have for trees so they can survive and thrive. Once that space has been filled by housing or infrastructure or roads, it's lost forever. We need to enhance the spaces that we have by think about your yard, your streets, your parks. The more trees that we have, the bigger the impact and the cooler our cities. And we need to create, design and deliver houses, streets and suburbs that everyone has access to good quality shade. So I've shown you what our future holds and you know the cost of heat. And I'm going to ask you again, how much would you be willing to pay for shade? Thank you. Lee starts there, ending her talk and this week's episode of the show by emphasising the importance of shade in fighting global warming. You've been listening to 2SER's Talk of the Town, featuring talks from last year's TEDx Macquarie University event. These talks were brought to you by both TEDx and Macquarie University. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have in this episode. But don't worry, we'll be back next week with the final episode in our TEDx series, discussing the importance of diversity. If that sounds like it interests you, then tune in next week at 7pm Sunday to find out more. To listen to this episode again, catch up on past episodes of Talk of the Town, or explore other shows from our network, go to 2ser.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ryan Stanton, and thank you for listening.